Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, today I'm going to give a further overview of metta practice. Metta is the Pali word for friendliness or kindness or loving friendliness, loving kindness. And Kathy did some of this already, so uh, some of it will be repetition and uh, I'll just add some. And I want to talk as part of that about briefly about the location of metta in the uh, Buddhist mandala, the Buddhist framework of teachings. And I'll say a little something about my own experience with metta as a segue into a way of practicing that I've been uh, working on and that has grown out of my own really my own challenges with metta practice uh, for most of my time with metta and more recently uh, fortunately able to draw on uh, my own uh, seeing the benefit of doing this kind of doing this kind of practice and then we'll, 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 we'll try some together so metta uh, as has been said already is uh, friendliness or kindness and this is in the Buddhist teachings one of the four Brahma Viharas. Uh, the Brahma Viharas are comprised of metta, kindness, along with compassion, uh, joy, uh, a particular kind of joy which we feel when we are truly happy that another person has what they want or things go their way or that they are well or get what they want or are in good health. This is mudita, a very particular kind of joy that is uh, selfless, egoless, uh, without jealousy. So when those quality mind, qualities of mind are absent and we can tap into our own inherent well-being and contentment and we recognize in another person their contentment or happiness or well-being. There's no obstacle or block. So we're just joyful. We actually experience joy because they're happy. This is a teaching and a practice that showed me actually how unhappy I was in my life for a very long time and very painful Buddhist teaching for me to bump up against because when I was around people that were doing really well I didn't like them um, not occasionally or as something that I noticed from time to time but as the way I was in relationship to other people period um, in the uh, last or fourth Brahma Vihara is equanimity. This is the capacity for a, a stable mind, a mind that doesn't need things to be different. And some of us believe, and I, I tend to describe, subscribe to the idea that friendliness or kindness, metta, is really the core 
center of the Brahma Viharas and to the degree that we learn how to cultivate or develop this uh, we get closer to the others and likewise we might say that when any of the other three are present probably the mind state of metta is intact there's probably some underlying metta available so brahma viharas vihara is a, a dwelling place it's a place to abide you might for example travel in asia or actually in america now in europe and you might stop over at a buddhist vihara and do some meditation and have a meal and get a bed for the night and and rest and have some sleep and so forth. So a, a vihara is a, a resting place, uh, literally, typically a physical structure, a building of, of some sort. <clears throat> and a and, and Brahma is uh, a Brahma refers to uh, lofty or great in a sense it's a it's a classification that comes out of a pre-buddhist and very rigid uh, ultimately comes out of a caste system uh, more or less and where people were granted status based on artificial socially constructed classifications that were given at birth, and the Buddha did something very interesting that he often did, which is that he that he took uh, common and understood frameworks, utilized them, but appropriated them and tweaked them uh, to accomplish a different purpose. And in the Buddhist path, Brahma is used to refer to uh, spiritual greatness. Uh, sometimes we see in the suttas references to great ones. Great ones are Brahmas, and they are the ones who have seen through delusion. They have right view, and they are able to easily access and embody uh, wisdom and compassion. Wisdom and compassion would underlie uh, their actions in the world. So the Brahma Viharas we can understand as abiding places. They are places that we can reside. We can rest, if you will, uh, our unwholesome, unhealthy, unskillful, uh, difficult, uh, we can rest our difficult mind and body, our pain, mind and body, as we learn to abide in kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. So this is, uh, however hard it is for any of us, I find it a very reassuring teaching and taking it out of its, taking Brahma Vihara out of its literal translation, uh, these are mind states that we can abide in. Right? We can, just like we can abide in this beautiful Dharma hall sitting on the floor and protected from the elements by the roof, we can abide in a state of metta. So that's what we're, that's what we're learning how to do.
an increasingly popular and generally accepted way of showing wisdom and kindness for someone else is to accept them for who they are, right? We're all of us in touch with this particular value probably in our communities and maybe even at work and maybe in our intimate relationships within, in, with close friends. And we talk about seeing and validating someone. Uh, we have our own experiences of being seen by somebody else. And uh, we might have had opportunities to get a sense of how healing or transformative that can be. This is the work of seeing and validating someone without asking them to change. Seeing and validating someone without asking them to change. When we're able to do this for other people, we offer them A, a great sense of relief from the tension caused by forcing change before they are ready. We offer people, when we're able to do this, a great sense of relief from the tension caused by forcing change before they are ready. And B, a sense of safety that comes from granting them their humanity and the knowledge that being liked by you is not reliant upon your idea of who they should be. Dave talked about the, his own concerns Uh, when should comes into our meditation practice. And I like to say the same thing about how we impose upon one another shoulds, sort of subtle violence and lack of safety and friendliness and kindness that is a part of this. But we do it out of our own need to have things be a certain way, don't we? So we can even take that not personally. We can understand why we're doing that. And at the same time, we can see how it might affect someone, might take something away from them. So in a sense, our conditioning is playing into it. Therefore, it's not our fault. So we can derive equanimity from that view. And yet, because we're cultivating care and kindness, we also take responsibility for it. And so this is where we come to the place of really becoming very interested in, in really seeing people for who they are, whether you agree or not. I see you. I understand that you've arrived in this particular manifestation of a self. Just like I've arrived in a particular manifestation of myself, we are not perfect. And I'm okay with that. I like to say, uh, to underscore this, that we are human beings having human experiences. That's it. We're human beings having human experiences. And this is what I mean by giving people back their humanity. We're giving them full permission to be a human being with all their gifts and skills and talents and limitations and things that bother you. However, for a variety of reasons, it's often harder to apply this to ourselves. And this is precisely the dilemma 
that metta practice for oneself addresses directly and experientially. In the absence, in the absence of loving ourselves, being friendly to ourselves, being kind to ourselves, we perpetuate a fabricated unworthiness. We are not fundamentally unworthy. It is a fabrication. It's something that's been conditioned, perhaps, from early formative years. It might be conditioned culturally, familially. It might still be conditioned in our current relationships to work, job. Okay, But this is a fabricated unworthiness. In the absence of loving kindness toward ourselves, we perpetuate a fabricated unworthiness and we keep intact the overarching delusion that A, we are supposed to be a certain way. And B, that through not acknowledging certain parts of ourselves, we will finally feel the love that is missing. This is the great mistake. That all those elements of oneself that we don't pre-approve of, that don't match the image we hold of ourselves or who we want to be, that if we can somehow slide those under the rug, not show them to somebody else, not even be honest that they exist to ourselves, repression, denial, avoidance. Somehow, we will finally get the love, care, kindness, attention that we're missing. And this is the greatest delusion of all. In Buddhist language, we would call this wrong view. It is precisely this behavior that solidifies metta's opposite. It is precisely this turning away from oneself that solidifies metta's opposite. Alternatively, a kind of right view would recognize acceptance and more generally attending to and caring for our most rejected parts as a form of love. So for me, what I have experienced, what I have discovered, is that Meta is learning to see and validate myself. Meta is learning to see and validate myself, just as I am learning to do for others. And it's a great, capital G, kindness, capital K, it's a great kindness. And here's, here's what's so refreshing to me that I can apply right now. And this is the whole point of this teaching. I can apply this right now. All of the things that I'm working to achieve in my life and get better at, all of the personality traits that I want to tweak and transform so that I'm a better teacher, a better partner, a better colleague, a better friend, a better son, a better brother, a better human being. I can still be engaged in that process. But no forward movement is required at all, zero, for me to make this shift. 
So I want to suggest that metta is becoming who we actually are in finding freedom in that. Metta is becoming who we actually are in finding freedom in that. And I spent a good amount of time. I spent a good amount of time thinking about this recently, and, and did some exploration around this uh, a week ago Thursday with the Against the Stream Boston Sangha. And I'm going to share with you a little bit about what I came up with uh, with regard to myself. I just want to share that. So I feel. Uh, almost always like I'm working way too much and that I'm never doing enough. There's a very unique kind of tension that I carry everywhere I go. Um, the feel like I'm working too much has me uh, drained and behind. And the not getting enough done, uh, despite how much I do, um, has me not feeling good enough. Right? I can't, and they're, and they're in exact opposition to each other. Right? Working harder or more doesn't alleviate the sense of not getting enough done. In the past couple of years, uh, there's been a, a, a kind of good fortune, a lot that I... Um, wanted in life has been made available to me and with that a certain kind of relaxation came and it was a relaxation uh, that was very short-lived it was like a uh, a great pause and a certain suffering that I've lived with my whole life and what I discovered after that pause is a great fear that everything I have will be taken away from me and so this is a particular kind of fear that I live with Sometimes I feel that others won't meet my needs, that I'm the only one that can help me accomplish what I want, materially, personally, spiritually. And the result of this is that I often feel alone. And so I have to learn how to press into this and connect with others. And if I don't do that, I stay isolated. And the last piece I'll share with you is that when I do make those connections and there is a transformative, healthy, healing, safe, secure relationship, I often feel that those people will leave. So this is a long path. We do a lot of this work and we make uh, gains and we find that there are, uh, it sets us up for new challenges. It, it, we see deeper and deeper limitations. This is why patience is so important in this practice. I'll do something a little bit different. I have some concluding comments, and I think I'll actually make those after we do a little bit of practice together. I think it might make more sense. So, 
What I'd like you to do is take your uh, pen and you've got a couple pieces of paper. It doesn't matter how many pieces of paper you have. And we're not going to, uh, I just want to say, we're not going to be talking out loud. You don't have to share with other people. This is just for you. Just for you. I'd like to invite you, if you want to participate in this, to write um, on these pieces of paper a part of the self, a part of you that you have a hard time accepting or being kind and loving to. So you can write, you can write one part of yourself, two or three if you have three pieces of paper. If you have eight parts of yourself you don't love, you don't need more paper, you can just do one or two, <laughs> one or two parts, one or two pieces of paper is sufficient. So, and, and really, given where you are in your practice, don't overthink this. Just first, first thought, best thought. Make this a, a Zen-style practice. Parts of the self that you have a hard time accepting or being kind and loving to, or parts of yourself that bring up judgment or criticism, if, if hearing the question that way is more useful. And you can just write one part, that's fine too. And if you finish while others are still writing, just settle back into your meditation practice. Because I've asked you a question, I might have stirred up a, a little bit of thinking, and I'd like to ask you to work with that through mindfulness once you've uh, written a couple parts down. Settle back into the body, notice your breath again. Maybe just listen to the sounds of bodies moving and pens writing on paper around you. Notice the hips on the cushion again. Come right back into your practice. Stay with yourself. And if there's any anxiousness or fear or exercises like this can bring up a lot of aversion, you can just notice that. I don't like this. I don't know what's happening. I don't want to do this. And then, as you take what for you is your formal meditation posture, I'd like to remind you to be as comfortable as you can, okay? And I'd like to invite you to take the pieces of paper that you now have that have something written on them and hold them in your hand. Um, the idea is to make a nice little cup, like a bowl. Uh, and you can place the pieces of paper in the little bowl that you are sort of carrying sensitive 
holding of the hands, you don't want to take your pieces of paper and squeeze the living shit out of them. <laughs> you want to gently hold your hands, palm up, and place the pieces of paper in your hands. Okay, and if you close your eyes, typically for practice, go ahead and close your eyes. If your eyes are open, that's fine too. Slightly downcast eyes toward the floor. And just notice the body sitting. Maybe this is not the orientation that your arms are usually in, so maybe it feels a little bit different. And then just briefly recalling the parts that are resting in the palm of your hand. And as I recite the metta phrases, you can just let the sense door hearing take in the words to begin. I see you. I see you. I will hold you. I will hold you. And I care about you. I see you. I will hold you. I will hold you in the palm of my hand. Gently with care because I care about you I see you I want to see you even though it's difficult sometimes I will hold you Just as I hold you now, just like this, present, paying attention, gently, with effort and care, because I love you. I see you, I will hold you, I care about you and love you. I see you. You don't need to be different right now. That is not a requirement for your care. There are no requirements for your care. I will hold you. I am here for you. I am here for you. Even if I'm not always able to be here for you, in this moment, I am here for you. I care about you. I love you. I see you. 
will hold you. I will be here for you. I care about you. So continuing at your own pace to recite these foundational phrases, I see you, I will hold you, I care about you. When you lose contact with the phrase, you can bring your attention back to any one of them. Ultimately, the object of meditation is the genuine feeling underneath the words, if you are able to access that. You orient your attention more toward the feeling. And should you not allow yourself simply to recite the phrases in a dry way, that's okay. I see you, I will hold you, I care about you. I see you. I will hold you. I am here for you. I will not abandon you. I care about you. I love you. love for you does not require you to be different.
if there's a lot of emotion, you could temporarily place your attention on the whole body and notice the places of contraction, holding, gripping, squeezing. Let the body, to the degree that you're able, just open and soften and relax. If there's any contraction at the breath, free the breath up to move again, however it needs to move. Allow the belly to move away from the spine and the shoulders to fall down away from the ears. So we hold the whole body gently and softly. I see you. I will not abandon you. I love you.
I see you. I will hold you. I care about you. So this is becoming who we actually are practice. It's a particular kind of meta practice and it delivers us into a place of humility, transparency. It's a self-effacing practice. It's a taking the mask off practice. The Buddhist tradition has different ways of talking about the self and one important way, one way that I like to aim practice at and teachings at uh, is the, the liberated or free self. And on the absolute level, that is the recognition that what we call self is really an impermanent and impersonal Uh, natural movement and flow of sensation, thoughts, feelings, emotions. And this is a relevant and important target for our practice, and it's also the home of spiritual bypassing and spiritual materialism. And on the other end of the spectrum, on the far end, 
we have all the socially accepted and agreed upon ways of identifying ourselves, parent, son, daughter, teacher, carpenter, doctor, lawyer, tall, short, heavy, thin, what have you. And in the middle of these two places is who we actually are, whether it's what we want or would prefer or choose. And our liberation is explored, uh, defined, discovered in this place between these two, between the ideal of total freedom and the narrow and shallow uh, titles that we use to place each other in the world. And so what is the benefit of practicing like this? What is the benefit of practicing like this? One benefit is that we provide safety, both for ourselves and for other people. We provide safety. When we allow ourselves to be who we are and don't force upon ourselves the pressure to change, we give people around us the opportunity to be themselves and they can drop that pressure. I was with my girlfriend recently, she was visiting, and I can't remember exactly what happened, but I remember feeling vulnerable, and I remember feeling like, I don't want to show up like this in relationship. I'm sure it was triggering some fear that uh, I'm not good enough, or that I won't be loved. And I said, you know, I just want to tell you how I'm feeling, and I want to tell you first that there's a part of me that doesn't want to tell you what I'm feeling, and I'm going to do it anyway. And I told her, and I said, I feel kind of small. And she said, well, you know what? I feel much safer. I feel much closer to you. Right? My guess is that to whatever degree she, like any human being, would benefit from a practice like this, uh, she was able to ratchet her need to be perfect down more. So this is giving someone back their humanity. This is giving someone their freedom. That's what we do in this practice, in this tradition. We seek our own and others' freedom. Another benefit is that we remove the pressure and strain of in- inauthenticity. We, we take our masks off. That's the... That's the the cliche, the metaphor, right? We take our masks off. Have you noticed how much energy it takes to wear the mask, the being who you want others to see you as? It's so draining, it's so hard. This is actually easy. I'm scared, I'm afraid of the future. I'm not confident right now. I think I'm gonna get up in front of the room and blow it. I don't want anyone to see what kind of thoughts I have. I don't want anyone to know all the different emotions I have. I don't want anyone to see me without my clothes off. I don't want anyone to see how much money is in my bank account. It's a lot of work to hide. It's very painful. 
And as soon as we stop doing that, we find metta. We don't need phrases. We don't need to come to a Dharma center. But we find and discover in our own capacity, friendliness, generosity, And we also know what parts of us deserve attention. We are aware of the things we do want to work on. So we're not saying we're not going to work on ourselves. We're not going to try to improve or make change or transform something through meditation or counseling or friendship or reading. I'm not saying that. I'm saying let's do all of that. And we have a better chance of doing that if we're honest about who we really are. So we see clearly, and then we decide what we want to work on, who we need to support us, what we need to support us. We become vulnerable and, vulnerable and open this is only good news if that's what you want. <laughs> but it is the result. We become vulnerable. We become open. But I think you want that because you came to an insight meditation retreat. Because when we're vulnerable and open, we start to experience life more directly. This means that we start to wake up. This is also what you've signed up for, I imagine. We start to wake up. And we think we need special conditions, and we think we need to arrive at that more idealized image of ourselves, uh, such that we'll be closer to whatever this waking up thing is that we have an idea about. But you're so close when you give yourself the permission to be honest, to wake up to this feeling, to this heartache, to this loss, to this grief, to this self-judgment, to this criticism. What we are required for waking up is the present moment. And in the present moment abides all these parts of ourself. And when you push any part of yourself away, you leap out of the present moment. And that opportunity is gone. And so we're sitting here training and staying present and available to ourselves whether we call it metta or insight, we're training in the capacity to be kind, which is what it takes to be with ourselves in the present moment. So we're practicing metta vipassana, which is becoming who we actually are. And lastly, we position ourselves in relationship to be seen. And this is where the talk started. We position ourselves in relationship to be seen. And as I alluded to, and as some of you, many of you, perhaps all of you know, this is one of the most healing and transformative things that can occur in our life. To be fully seen and validated. And for me, this is the giving and receiving of love. And most of us, if not all of us, want that, to be loved. But here's the thing, and this is why we're doing this. If no one can see us, 
rather, but no one can see us if we don't reveal ourselves. No one can see us if we don't reveal ourselves. And we can't reveal ourselves to others if we don't allow ourselves to be seen by us. 